Hey guys, welcome to the debrief. This is our debrief after our episode on proof of work versus proof of stake, a debate. Lynn Alden, Justin Drake on the podcast. A fantastic conversation, well articulated, as I've said a few times right now. These are the two guests to do this, to have this conversation. I'm not sure that we could have brought anyone else in to have the level of conversation, the depth of, of conversation that, that we had today on the podcast. Uh, so I'm super grateful for that. I also wonder though, David, do you think any minds were actually changed as a result of this podcast? What do you think? Um, that's a good question. That is a good question. There, There is always, there, there are just a number of groups that, that I'm in, all of Ethereum focus, of course, because that's where I live, um, that talk about this subject matter. So it's like, are we changing people's minds when we have debates, Do, when we have Twitter debates, when we have podcast debates, like whose mind actually gets changed? Because like the, the, the far, the, the Ethereum people don't, the, the deep Ethereum people don't change their mind. The deep Bitcoin people don't change their mind. But the, the conversation, I think the answer to this conversation is always there's always the silent middle who's undecided. It's always about the undecided voters, and and you know you know this is also true in uh, like democracies, right? Like the undecided middle who are uh, just you know un, a little bit unsure and just need to be prodded in a particular direction by compelling arguments. And so I think they're actually it, unlike in like American democracy, the middle the middle undecided voters actually just a very narrow band. I think in the world of crypto the undecided middle is very, very large. And I would actually say it's most people, especially well, when most of the world is not a crypto world. There's still so much untapped decisions that people have not made yet about what they believe about crypto. I think that's just it. I think that's the, like in, you know, when, when politi politicians talk about the undecided middle, they're talking about like the total fixed pool of uh, voters, right? Not many new voters every year. It's I guess right. the, the population increase of those who turn 18 or whatever, but um, in crypto, the the undecided middle is in the billions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, most people. <laughs> it's most people, and so that 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 is the value of this sort of debate. It's it's kind of like I'm new to the space. I'm hearing some people say something about proof of work, proof of stake. I'm gonna listen to this episode and form my own opinions. I do think that people who are entrenched are going to continue to be entrenched. On, on on their uh, various perspectives, and I I actually want to ask you when you know when I'm you know d done with this other question of like what like what do you think Lynn's strongest arguments were because I know you're you're you know pro proof of stake as I'm as am I with many things, mm -hmm. but before I get there, I also wonder if this debate is less relevant to the undecided middle who are coming into crypto. Okay, mm -hmm. and here's where I I wonder sometimes if we might be as more decentralization maximalists in a little bit of our own bubble here mm. because we carry, care very much about um, you know, proof of work versus proof of stake. But if you're a new entrant, like think about all of the new people who entered for NFTs in 2020 and 2021. They're just like, oh, oh where, where the NFTs at, guys? I'm here to the party. Where's the cheap gas fees? And where are the NFTs? Is that on Solana? Cool. Is that on Polygon? Cool. Is that on Ethereum? Uh, gas fees suck, but okay, cool. Right? Do they even care about this debate? Is <laughs> my question. It's like, does the future undecided middle actually think this whole topic is is even relevant, or is this just something for the uh, the deep protocol people, mm -hmm. uh, the crypto people who've been long for the round, been around for the longest, and the uh, the more decentralization maximalists among us? 
I think that, yes, that's a very good point. Less and less people coming in are going to care about the nature of the protocols. And that's why it's really, really important for to get it right, for, to, uh, to get it right <laughs> and for yes. other people, hardliners, to really, really care about this. And yeah. So that, this is definitely why, why I really, really care about this, certainly. It's because, like, people that care about this need to care more than the average person because there's a lot of people that don't care about it. Yeah, we need to make up for all those people, <laughs> people that don't, don't care. care yeah. Um, but also, I think... Instead of all these new entrants to come in to, you know, you know, find the, the latest shitcoin or to find the next NFT or to, I don't know, participate in like the yield, the degen yield farms that don't really care about how these things are supported, we can still watch their actions. We can still watch, watch what they're doing. And I would, I think it's pretty fair to claim that in 2021, the, the bull market of 2021, that Ethereum won out versus Bitcoin in terms of adoption and I guess like Ethereum's proof of work in 2021, but still with the culture and, and decision to eventually become proof of stake. Hmm. And then what, uh, and then Ethereum got, got beat out in the second half of 2021 by other proof of stake smart contract platforms. And so I think maybe society doesn't really care about this debate, but when you watch their actions, they are being onboarded into proof of stake or proof of stake soon to be smart contract DeFi platforms. And so when we talk about adoption, like, no, they don't have opinions on it, but they have still made their choice of proof of stake, smart contracts. And that's always been the same, uh, uh, like, value proposition that Ethereum has, has talked about from the beginning is proof of stake plus smart contracts. Like, Ethereum invented these things. Now, Lynn Alden might argue, but like, okay, but where is the wealth actually being stored? Mm. Because that is usage, mm. right? You're talking mm. about new users on the chains, but... She might say, what I'm talking about is actual like store of value wealth. Where do people decide to park their their money? And of of that still, uh, of course, Bitcoin is still king. Proof of work is still king with Bitcoin and, and Ethereum still, you know, on, on proof of work. But yeah, that's um, I I do think that's a an interesting question. Um, I I guess maybe going to, did you change your mind on anything at all? Or another way to ask that question would be like, what do you think that Lynn's strongest arguments were in this episode? I think the newest argument for me was uh, the illustration of all these like micro sources of energy around the world that can't be inherently captured by like a large scale mining operation and can really only support a small scale mining operation. That's a new argument that I haven't heard before. What was um, the argument again? That there are like these na these pocket, very small micro pockets of energy distributed all around the world, and like you know natural gas flare ups or like you know geothermal vents or and I think what she really alluded to is that like there's a cap on how much energy these things can produce, and these are like pockets of free energy basically. And the argument from Bitcoiners is that like the Bitcoin mining facilities are inherently incentivized to go and produce a mining facility around these small pockets of energy. But that goes against the argument of economies of scale, where like, you know, right. it's just a, it's a cap on how big these facilities can get, which means it's more and more decentralized. Um, however, it still can condense in like um, uh, 
collapse into economies of scale because even though there's many, many, many micro pockets of energy and so these Bitcoin mining facilities are spread around, around the world, companies or a single company can still buy every single one of those things. And it still ultimately collapses down to economies of scale at the end of the day, I think, regardless. Um, but this this natural gas, like I've always known that there's like Bitcoin miners and natural gas are just like a great thing to mix together. Never really considered like the how that is a decentralizing force of at least the physical location of hash power. Yeah, that was that was new to me, too. Um, I would still definitely that was like a kind of a side. Mm -hmm. I guess we've heard a lot of these arguments already in different mm -hmm. forms. But just Lynn articulates the pro proof of work argument so well. Like you got to have Lynn on for with a conversation, but like I feel like maybe getting to the crux of her argument. Um, one piece that I do actually like about Bitcoin and proof of work is this idea that there is some uh, decay yeah. in the asset, right? That is a plus to proof of work for D me. Decay like in the security. In, no, what 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 I mean is like. Um, your tokens, your your tokenized ASICs mm -hmm. have a shelf life. They depreciate over time. Unlike with Ethereum, right? Tokenized so, ASICs? What? Untokenized, untokenized ASICs, ASICs, basically. Yeah. Okay. So, so your so ASICs no, depreciate. ASICs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So your ASICs <laughs> depreciate in that like hardware gets old and it, you know, it, it expires and there's some churn. There's some turnover. Whereas with proof of stake in Ethereum, you don't see there's none of that churn. Or, or or turnover, right. right? So like my assets is is as if I have like the golden ASIC. Right. Because like, you know, On the, the golden goose you'll never lose. Never lose. It, it, you know. And I I think that is a um a plus point on the Bitcoin side. But I still don't think it counteracts the economies of scale that an individual like that a that it comes with proof of work that totally skews things away from the decentralized small time, small fry miner and towards the big industrial mining powerhouses. Like it's, it's a plus, but it's, it was overemphasized in, in that argument. And I think the, the negatives of having economies of scale be sort of the, like the main principle. And where, whereas with, with Ethereum where you have like sort of, you know, um, one token and it's it's completely you know fair distribution as uh, justin said you don't have any advantage if i'm staking one eth i still receive the same percentage as you if you're staking mm -hmm. a thousand eth right there's no advantage in you having more capital in this i think that's a far more important attribute if i'm thinking about designing a fair system for the world than this idea of churn although i do like the the churn element of, of proof of work and it would be nice if you could have both but it seems like we can't no, so I actually disagree with that as a property because the churn element of proof of work is actually a source of uh, inequality or inequitableness. It, it, it appears on the surface level as something that is fair and equitable. And because there's always this turnover, because there's always this churn, there is like a new leader in, in proof of work, right? There's always like a new bigger bigger fish. Like there's a new Bitmain, right? Bitmain right. was yeah. the last cycle and then right. there could be a new manufacturer. The biggest, the biggest fish always ends up getting smaller minor. into, into yes. creating like a new bigger fish. But like what I think that Lynn Alden misses and, and people that make this argument miss is that the actual formalization of the rate of return that's baked into Ether, the asset that's baked into proof of stake, eliminates so much just extra stuff that actually democratizes access to returns. So what, what, what do I mean by that? 
uh, the, because there's churn in proof of work, it makes things inherently competitive. And that, that Bitcoiners love that competitiveness, but it con confuses me because that means that it allows someone to win. And then once they win, they get to shut the doors behind themselves. And so that the, the competitiveness aspect is actually a centralization aspect because it allows the, 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 the successful person to rise to a new level of power and then use exactly what Justin Drake was talking about to uh, you know, financialization, financial tools to control for variables. And like you need to have savvy financial smarts and brains about you. And that is something that you know, only a very small people, uh, number of people have. And so the largest proof of work entity will find the, the best financial person to allow for them to retain their privilege at the lead. And then they'll also find the, the best like energy hardware manufacturer. They'll also find the best, they'll just find the best talent every time there's like a variable the supply chains for getting asics to the facilities the the energy to the production to get that to the the asics uh the the the, the financialization aspect anytime there's a variable there there's an expert there who's best at that in the world and eventually that will all be centralized into the same entity because that's how capital collects uh, that's just what happens and so all of a sudden like this competition which Bitcoiners and, and proof of work advocates say creates churn actually creates capture if you're good at the competition. And so by eliminating all of that competition and formally indoctrinating the rate of return into the asset, it democratizes. Are you good at finance? Because you're just as good as, at finance as everyone else in the world if you just hold and stake Ether. There's no better way to be good at that. You don't need to have to worry about supply chains because Ethereum is the supply chain. There is no privileged supply chain that you can access. There is no manufacturer of ASICs that is better at manufacturing ASICs than anyone, that, than anyone else. And then that advantage of, of uh, ASIC manufacturing can't be captured because there is no ASIC manufacturing. And so... The, the arguments that proof of stake is the rich get richer are ass backwards. It is the exact opposite of the truth. By eliminating all of these variables, you are providing just complete and, and, and fair access to the rate of return. And so this is why like some of these arguments that, that proof of workers make are actually the complete inverse of what is actually true. Yeah, I do think that they've seen some... Um... Some nice churn, for example, the exodus of Bitcoin miners out of out of China that might have put some more wind in their sails with this sort of argument. But, but it's just the first 15 years of Bitcoin. We have 150 plus years to go. Yeah, I just I kind of go back to on the proof of stake side of things. Um, I've never once thought about running my own like ETH miner, Bitcoin miner, like never once. Why? Because mm -hmm. it's a fool's game. Yeah, it's as just, somebody like, who's how done could this, I as an yeah. individual? Right. It's just it's just dumb. They're going to sell you. You're going to get ripped off at every step of the way, like mm -hmm. every single step of the way. And yet somebody with one ETH in a decentralized staking pool like Rocket Pool can stake their ETH. Mm -hmm. One ETH. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a little bit or a fraction of that. Um, so that to me is, uh, you know, kind of the nail in the coffin for that argument. It's like, oh, oh, I, I want to I want to um, be a validator. I want to create hash power. Or I want to be a block producer. Can I do that in the network? No. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense for you to do that. Right. Okay. Well, on proof of stake, I can. 
Um, I guess one other one other aspect that seemed to kind of run through the course of of uh, through Lynn's arguments. I think we're focusing on Lynn's arguments, obviously, because um, longtime bankless listeners will know. <laughs> I mean, wait, right? Like right. we do. I mean, even right. though I think Lynn articulates the proof of work position better than any. Um, the argument that basically the meme distillation of this you find in crypto Twitter is Ethereum equals fiat, proof of stake equals uh, fiat. It is the um, federal uh, FOMC. It's like, you know, the 13, 12, 13 uh, people on the Fed chair making decisions about monetary policy. It's the system we already had. And Lynn eloquently says the exact same thing, not in meme form, but she basically says, hey, um, stake is old technology. We have that. It's called the existing fiat and banking system. Proof of work is the new thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's her take is basically Ethereum. And by the way, all of the other proof of stake chains, all of them, she just kind of groups them in a whole lump sum. They're uh, they're all equity. Not saying she's not saying they're bad, but they can't be money because they're just like fiat, and that's the system that we're trying to leave with crypto, right? Whereas I think there's a much more subtle distinction that Justin was trying to to was getting to, which is basically like no, the the argument doesn't hinge on um, whether it's proof of stake or proof of work, right? That's like that doesn't even matter. That's just kind of the engine for how blocks are produced and how consensus happens, right? That doesn't matter. The the What it all hinges upon is, is there an actual FOMC, like 13 people in a, like making the decisions for governance and monetary policy? Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Like it, the nexus is around governance control of these things. And I would make the argument, I think Justice was making the argument that Bitcoin and Ethereum are close to equivalent. Bitcoin has some advantage in that it's completely ossified, all right? But from a consent, like governance decision-making, it's both rough consensus, right? right? Like they are both ossified in terms of monetary policy. You can't, like a a set of 13 core developers can't just be like, hey, we're thinking of minting another 100,000 ETH and putting it in a dev fund. Like that just can't happen on the Ethereum on the Ethereum side of right. things in the same way it can't, can't happen on the Bitcoin side of things. So what I would say, but, but it can happen with a bunch of other proof of stake chains. Right. All right. Yeah. Like, because many of them are a bit more like the, the fed mm-hmm. and the FOMC and they can actually like shareholders can vote in monetary changes. Okay. But right? here, here's, here's, uh, here's where I want to get your perspective on. Uh, Tezos is on-chain voting and is very much like what you are describing, which Ethereum is not. But Solana is not on-chain voting, but it is delegated proof-of-stake. So does the delegated proof-of-stake aspect of Solana change how you would perceive proof-of-stake as fiat? Question to you. I think, yeah, I th- so I think... I think all of this exists on a on a spectrum, and the right. spectrum is is not about proof of stake versus like proof of work. It's more about like uh, governance control in one system versus the other, and how corruptible that governance control actually is. Like I feel like every time a protocol is born, it's destined to die. Like when a protocol is born, at some point it's going to die. And when I say protocol, I mean broadly, like. Any governance protocol, the Constitution, for example. I mean, people in the U.S. might not like to hear this, but I think the Constitution is not necessarily going to last millennia, okay? It's on its way out. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, it's going to—all protocols die over time. And why do they die? Uh, they get corrupted. 
they get like they move from decentralization to like corruption a few uh, uh, a small plutocracy group kind of controlling this the, the strings for everyone else and then the system eventually gets so corrupted it dies decentralization is the technology that pushes out that corruption for as long as possible it can't do it forever but it can push it out as long as possible and we know the constitution of the u.s is a good protocol because hell it's lasted like you know hundreds of years at this point Mm -hmm. so good job right we had balance of power like we've done a pretty good job but even now you can like i think americans will feel this you can feel the corruption the erosion kind of seeping into it the cancer seeping into it so that's what so the spectrum to me is about governance control and it's all about decentralization so when you ask that about uh ethereum versus solana right Mm -hmm. there's so many other factors besides whether they have on-chain voting or not that make it more decentralized in terms of governance control, right? And one of the main factors we've talked about so often is the ability for individuals, the non-ruling elite, to actually run a node and provide a check on the powers that be. And if you can't run a node, if you have have to have super powerful hardware, for example, uh, then you are more more centralized, more prone to the corruption that inevitably comes uh, in, in your protocol. But there are other factors too, like distribution of the token it's funny we didn't actually talk about that as one of one of the elements in proof of work versus proof of stake because you might argue that proof of work is more fair distribution right Mm -hmm. which we actually didn't get into this conversation but like how many people actually own the asset and can participate in that network and something like solana is very very uh, much more concentrated than uh theorem but i put them all on this spectrum and i wouldn't rule out that uh, something like a Solana or a Tezos could become closer to a money over time, right? Like I wouldn't rule that out. I just don't think that's that's likely, and that's not the trajectory that these chains are are moving in the direction of. And I don't know I, that, but that's my that's that's how I see it. Is it's kind of a, a spectrum of moneyness, the spectrum of decentralization, and a spectrum of uh, governance control. And I think. If you're looking at like the two horses in crypto in the race, it's even Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Like they both have these things. And to say now it's only Bitcoin because it's only proof of work and Ethereum because it's proof of stake, now it's disqualified from being a horse in that race doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't hold water. I think the question, where does the cancer exist in the system is a really useful framing of the question. Because it's like it's like where does the power lie? But then also it's it's more than that because the the what a cancer is it's like a cell in a larger organism that is misaligned with the greater part of the organism and what and it just replicates itself over and over and over again by consuming all of the resources of the system for its own benefit rather than the benefit of the system. Now what's cool about crypto economics is that everyone is allowed to be a, a profit maximalist and that actually and this the, the protocol allows everyone to be profit maximalists and the protocol constrains that profit maximalism in ways that actually benefits the, the the greater system and you can even dive down into like the cells of the human body where every cell is is self-interested in its own self-preservation but in baked into our dna we know that you can't have too much self-interest because if you grow and with too much self-interest, you die. You kill the whole system because you suck up all the blood from the body and then that's how cancer works and then you die. And so asking yourself like, all right, where does the cancer exist in the system to the point where the greed 
is too much and too concentrated and too powerful that it just corrupts the whole rest of the system. And that's what I see when I see the variables like who can control supply chains, who can control ASIC production, who can get the best access uh, to energy, which is a political question that's external to the protocol that the protocol can't control. And so that's when, when I say that like the variables of control and the variables of a return on investment are eliminated in proof of stake and formally just uh, uh, imbued into the asset. That is the protocol controlling greed and it's removed all external variables of greed and just baked them right into the asset. And that's why we're bullish on ether because there's so much greed to be had just by buying the asset and every other variable is controlled. And so uh, the, using this mental model, you can, the, of like, where does the cancer exist in the system? We can have, both Solana and Ethereum as uh, n- uh, non-on-chain voting systems, unlike Tezos. Uh, and But we can still point to Solana as being like, there's a lot of cancer in the system due to the delegated proof-of-stake p- nature of it. potential for cancer, Potential, right? cancer it's, surface it's area. Just, cancer exactly. surface area. Yeah. yeah. And then we can, then this is why Ethereum people don't like on-chain voting like proof-of-stake because on-chain voting is a cancer surface area and there's the potential for off-chain collusion in, in delegated proof-of-stake and also uh, on-chain voting systems that the protocol can't control. That's external to the protocol. This is also the reason that protocols need to ossify over yeah. time. In particular, like kind of their monetary policy uh, needs to ossify. Their governance needs to ossify, right? Um, I, I think that's, um, that's a very important element. But I think there is a chink in the armor here for Ethereum and proof-of-stake. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, Lynn mentioned this a couple of times, and I kind of agree with her on this, which is if you start to get all of the stake custodied in that it's no longer individuals like you and I running our own separate hardware and our own separate node from somewhere and participating as independent, decentralized validators in the network. If it starts to be Coinbase, Kraken, and some non-decentralized staking pools, for, for instance, then I think you do lose a lot of the valuable properties that keep proof of stake decentralized. And I've seen this, by the way, with um, like other proof of stake networks that I've participated in. It was just like, oh shit, this just quickly uh, eroded and degraded into like a plutocracy of a small set of, of validators, right? We got like, you know, 10 validators, 15 validators who are in the same telegram groups coordinating on the same things who have 90% of the stakes. Like I participated in these networks before. I can see how that has happened in in the past. Mm -hmm. And if all of our stake gets centralized and custodied by third parties, we don't have Mm -hmm. this independent validator class. I think some of her critiques are actually accurate. Now, I don't think it's any better than, than proof yes. of work necessarily. Yes. Proof of work is way more <laughs> broken in. on the same okay. variable. <laughs> because what mining facilities are, are custodies. They're custody yeah. agents of the, of the hash power over the system. And it makes it even worse that like, okay, say your, your proof of work custody system, which is a Bitcoin mining facility, because there's not one person that owns the whole entire proof of work facility, it's like they're shareholders and like they're basically custodying your ASIC. You can buy an ASIC and then send it to the facility because you can't feasibly run it at home. So these things are just in the same way that Coinbase is custodying Ether that's being staked on Ethereum, proof of work facilities are custodying ASICs that are managing the proof of work blockchain. It's worse 
in proof of work because if you are feeling like you need to take control over your ASIC, like what are you going to do? You're going to have to go drive and go get it. <laughs> what are they going to mail it to you? And so, like, do people still own ASICs? Yeah. Like, are they still like like sharing ASICs? Is that still a thing? I, I guess they're I, participating kind of, in mining more, pools more or a little less, bit, right? And so, like, yeah. the ability to exit out of like if the nation state does come knocking, it's easier to exit out of Coinbase than it is out of a proof of work facility because you can just withdraw. Uh, and so th- there's that there's that variable. There's also the issue that like okay, it's easier to solve that problem. Because Ethereum has its own app layer, Ethereum's own app layer is where it solves its own problems. And so staking inside of Coinbase is centralization risk, but staking inside of Rocketpool, which is over time going to be have the same amount of like UX and UI ease as staking Coinbase if it doesn't even already. And so we already have an escape valve that way. Uh, and then the last, the last thing is like, okay, even if those that didn't work, there it's not like... Uh, Coinbase can hold stake hostage because of the, 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 and this is what Justin Jake is currently thinking about is like, okay, in this scenario where Coinbase is malicious, we can't slash Coinbase because that represents other people's ETH. But there are. What do you we, mean we? You mean the protocol? The rules. protocol. The protocol. This is not some arbitrary decision of like right. core devs saying, we we're going to slash you. We the community. This is the baked in the rules of the protocol, right? Right. Yeah. Or so, the social layer that mm-hmm. all the node, uh, like mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wanted to make that clear because he said that he said that, and I was just like, I bet a bunch of Bitcoiners like, see, I told you, you're talking about freezing funds, <laughs> right? Core Dev Cabal doing right. this. No, this is com- uh, consensus by community, which is how Ethereum has always hard forked, and so like, there's the potential to just slash Coinbase and and their malicious uh, actions on 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 Ethereum, but uh, we don't want that because they have other people's stake, and so what can happen is that you can just uh, have a forced withdrawal from proof of stake. And so instead of slashing all of Coinbase as a community, because there's a 51% on on Ethereum, uh, we can uh, have a hard fork as we do. And instead of slashing it, we can just force them to not be validators. And that kicks them back at the end of the validator queue because it takes time to put a large amount of Ether into proof of stake. It takes like 200 days for somebody the size of Coinbase to get back into the validator queue. So you punish them by just not allowing them to partake in consensus for 200 days due to their malicious activity. And then what Justin Digg was saying this in the podcast where, okay, if they do it again, then they get slashed. And by that time, the community has the option to withdraw their Ether from Coinbase because they know they're being shitty custodians of their Ether. And perhaps they should, uh, they can go to Rocket Pool, which is kind of where they should have been in the first place. This is like uh, this is interesting. Sorry, it's, it's, sorry. The point is that Ethereum and DeFi and smart contracts and proof of stake has optionality in the yeah. ways that proof of work does not. Yeah, I do think so. I do think that this optionality, this uh, programmability, this expressivity <laughs> baked into Ethereum yeah. that Bitcoin doesn't have actually solves a host of um, potentially cancer, corruptible problems that you actually see, right? That you're trying to avoid, keeps it decentralized. Some examples of this, right? DeFi as an example. When Bitcoin, and this is the this is why we started Bankless for this use case is basically we said, hey, for Bitcoin to do anything besides a simple transfer, unless you're, you know, like moving a lot of funds, you have to use a crypto bank, a custody crypto bank to do it. How does, and that centralizes the network. How does Ethereum do this? DeFi. And why? Because of the expressivity of its platform. Or you think about like um, the pain point of uh, Ethereum not having a native multi-sig built in. Well, now we have like Gnosis multi-sig, 
which was built on the smart contract programming language on Ethereum that holds like $110 billion worth of assets. Okay, like nice Lindy effect there, like pretty secure, almost as good as like it being a protocol level feature. Or you think about scalability. The problem for Ethereum, the problem for Bitcoin is how does it scale? And so Bitcoin has to go through this approach of like, well, it's like we'll do this uh, kind of sidechain thing or we'll, we'll use like lightning and state channels. We have like one bullet in our chamber for this. Ethereum's like, we have tons of different potential options for scalability, state channels, rollups. One of them's going to Let's stick. see which works. One of them's going to work. And lo and behold, like rollup seems like it's, it's sticking. And so we're scaling because Ethereum has the expressivity. The reason this is relevant, I think, is because um, a crux of Lynn's argument as well, in addition to Ethereum being fiat, was Ethereum is complex, too complicated. When I want, uh, I, I want a thing to do one thing really well, and that's all I want. I don't want, she said, I don't want Tesla stock to be my money, my monetary unit, okay, is what she said, right? I think there's like appeal to that. The problem is a calculator does one thing and it does it well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. How much less powerful is a calculator versus the computer that you and I are talking about, right? And the, like, I don't say when it comes to computing numbers, like, oh shit, I'm, I'm not gonna use my computer for this, David. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna use my calculator for this too specific function. <laughs> too it's com too complicated, right? I just, I, it, that argument to me is, it, it sounds really good and it feels really good, mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually like hold up. But there is like strong memeiness in that argument. Like, yeah, of course, like you want your, you know, hammer to be a hammer and you want your shovel to be a shovel and two different tools for two different things. My question is like, like maybe the uh, expressivity of Ethereum or the concept of maybe the expressivity of, of Ethereum is actually the thing that's like fighting the cancer, right? Yes. These are like the white blood cells in your body that yes. like when the cancer yes. rears its head, it's right. like right. attack, attack, attack. Like let's solve this with more decentralization and keep the cancer out of the system for longer. So I do think the expressivity, the added complexity for Ethereum is actually going to lead to more decentralization over time. Why? Because we've seen it. Rocket Pool is an example of like custodial staking is a problem. Well, we can bake some smart contract foo into, into, uh, into you know, smart contracts, create a decentralized staking pool. So in, in the uh, podcast, Lynn was talking about like, you want your fork to be a fork. Because then if you start adding your, you know, a spoon to the fork, well, then you have a spork. And then if you start adding a knife to that, well, then you have something else. And then it stops, being a, starts, it stops being a very good fork. And yeah. the, the argument is that, like, you don't want Bitcoin to have any utility. You just want it to have money. But the thing is, I think, again, it's, it's the inverse of this. Like, okay, if you, if you add a spoon to a fork, you get a spork, and it becomes slightly more useful in slightly more use cases. And you've had a knife to it, it becomes slightly more useful. And then you get a Switch Army knife, and it gets slightly more useful in many, many more use cases. The thing is, if you keep on adding more and more utility, you end up at money. Like, money is the ultimate utility. And so it, it, you don't get money by stripping away utility. You get money by adding every single ounce of utility that you, the universe can offer. And you do that by, and at, at the end of that path is what money is. Yo. And so a smart contract platform is literally, hey, do you want to invent utility? Because you can invent it. And then the ether 
can go into the smart contract and then provide the value this, for the this utility. Is the thing. Okay, this is the thing. Okay, so like um, money is just an app. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a coordination application. Right. Right. It's just a coordination application. I remember when uh, the iPhone came out, like when it was being hyped, and like Apple's creating a you know uh, a computer and a phone combined, and people were like, my flip phone. Look, I want my phone to be my phone. And my computer to be my computer. And my, my computer to be my computer. And I got a laptop and my I don't My calculator need... to be my calculator. And I, right. I want my CD player over here. And Steve Jobs is like, uh, no. Like, <laughs> your phone is just an app on right. the computer. Mm-hmm. It's just one app. Right. And which which one? Like, the, mm-hmm. the, the last decade or two. It's like, was it the flip phone? Or was it the iPhone, the smartphone concept, right? Because he realized that, like... The phone, just like money, is just an app. And so we are creating these digital scarcity machines that help human coordination, right? That are super uh, censorship resistant and trusted. And money is just an app on that, right? And there are so many other apps you could spin up. And when you actually, it turns out, just like with the iPhone, when you have a single platform that can host money and all of these other apps, it actually makes the the phone app even more valuable, Yeah. right? Right. In addition to the platform itself. Right. I think that's what's happening here. But before you experience an iPhone, you could buy that argument. You could be like, oh, yeah, you know, I do want my phone to be my phone. I'll have my computer to be my computer. But the minute you tried an iPhone and you started using a smartphone, you're just like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. I do think that's part of it. I just think a lot of people haven't actually used mm-hmm. uh, some of the stuff like Ethereum. In, in depth. Yeah, I was just about uh, to say the same thing. There's there's a friend of mine who uh, came into the space in like 2013, 2015, and started off as like a Bitcoiner, uh, and then disappeared from the space until like much later, like sometime around like 2019, 2020. And so he went from being a hardcore Bitcoiner with big Bitcoiner beliefs and, and generally Bitcoin bags, you know, a few ETH bags, just because he was friends with me and I convinced him to. Uh, <laughs> but then he started to use DeFi. And he started to use Compound, and he started to use Uniswap, and he goes, he, he goes, this is what we talked about in Bitcoin five, six, seven years ago. And then I disappeared from the space and came back. But it's like, this whole like on-chain DeFi is what we all talked about was possible back in early, early Bitcoin culture. And then he, then he dis- disappeared from the space and came back, and then Ethereum executed on that belief. And so what, what's happened in the last five years is that Bitcoin, or the Bitcoin culture, the Bitcoin like hive mind, has realized you can't do DeFi on Bitcoin. You don't have any optionality. So the Bitcoiner narrative has gone from, oh, we have the potential of NFTs and color coins. We have the potential of on-chain DeFi. We have all this potential. We have self-sovereign identity, all these things that we can do. And then collectively, the Bitcoin hive mind realized they can't actually do that. And so the Bitcoin narrative has changed. It's like, we don't want any of that. We just want to be money. And it was a bad idea. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was a bad idea. Never, you don't ever want that to be part of your chain. But it was, a, it was not a capitulation. It was a change in narrative to answer to what the strengths of Bitcoin are. What the strengths of Bitcoin are are 21 million units and you can transfer them around. But it was not a, a, ever part of the OG culture. And that's one of the reasons why there was such a strong exodus of Ethereans, future Ethereans out of Bitcoin into the Ethereum ecosystem. Now, I think Lynn might make the argument that um, that same exodus is happening today. Total locked value, she said, mm-hmm. 94%, 97%, something like this, uh, a year ago, maybe a little longer than a year ago. And mm-hmm. now that's been eroded by other um, smart contract. And so that lends to her belief that there is only one Bitcoin 
but there can be many of these various um, equities. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think that to me that just shows that there's a ton of demand for Ethereum that Ethereum wasn't able to satisfy in that short time frame of the beginning, early stages of this whole entire industry. And there's not very much meaningful difference behind an alternative L1 that is optimized for scale and an Ethereum L2. And so the idea is that, well, really there's only one smart contract platform with a decentralized base layer that also has very money-like properties in its base asset. So no, there's only one Ethereum, Ryan, is what I would say to that. I uh, I actually agree a lot with a lot of Lynn's arguments. Um, if you talk about like governance controlled chains, mm-hmm. proof of stake chains totally. that are much like more on the side of the you know the, the spectrum where a small pool you know controls the outcomes, mm-hmm. and so th- this is the subtlety that's lost when you just say proof of work versus proof of stake because there are many different forms of proof of stake and ethereum's proof of stake is very different than like the cosmos app chain proof of stake or the proof of stake on the the polygon you know side chain network it's like totally different beasts here Uh, and i think people who just take a cursory view of this thing just tend to gloss over that but i will also say people that take an even higher level cursory view of the thing like mainstream for example they see two things. They see proof of work, you're killing the environment, mm-hmm. you're wasting all of this energy, and proof of stake, and you're not. Oh, we'll pick the one that you're not. Right. And I do think, even though we didn't talk about the environmental like externalities here, it's there's definitely some narrative externalities that are being produced mm-hmm. with um, proof of work. And that's, uh, that's also going to be another uphill battle for um, Bitcoiners to fight because... Like governments of the world and mainstream of the world is just going to be like, oh, we don't understand decentralization. Can we just pick the one that the doesn't clean waste? One? Yeah, yeah. Let's just do that. <laughs> That's <it's>, obvious, <laughs> right? It feels very much like you got dirty crypto and you got clean crypto. Uh-huh. Let's do the clean crypto, please. Right. Hands up, right? Yeah. And so that's going to be another pervading narrative, I think. Anything else to say? Yeah, on the difference between like Bitcoiners critiquing Ethereum proof of stake versus other proof of stake, delegated proof of stake, on-chain voting proof of stake. Uh, I've been I've been arguing with Bitcoiners for years. It's kind of like how I got into this industry. Um, arguing were, like you had a, a show yeah, with a Bitcoiner. Like, we talk- new, new, newer ba- uh, newer Bankless listeners uh, probably don't don't remember that I actually had a podcast, a crypto podcast before Bankless, which was POV Crypto. I was the Ethereum a co-host, was the Bitcoiner, and we just at a time where Bitcoiners and Ethereans like never talked to each other. Yes, really. that was a revolutionary very thing. We, were, we bridged the, the gap. And so when people call me a closed-minded maxi, I'm like, you never listened to POV Crypto now, did you? <laughs> uh, and so uh, the entire time of the, the legacy of like what I was trying to do in like from 2018 to 2020, when we kind of let the podcast fizzle out, was convince Bitcoiners that we have the same values and principles and we believe in the same things and we want the same <laughs> outcomes, but yeah. Ethereum does it better. <laughs> and, and they just wouldn't want, and they, they were like, no, you're just a fiat maximalist. You're trying just to extrapolate the old system. And I was just, that was just like two and a half years. I was like, guys, we want the same things. We believe Did in the same Did anyone change things. their mind? Uh, not the guests, not the other co-hosts, but the people that listened. The middle. I, People, people have told me that they have sold all of their Bitcoin bags for Ether bags because of POV crypto. Wow. I, I got a ton of feedback as a result of that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think, I do think it's, um, 
it's great to have these conversations uh, and to talk about this. And um, I also think maybe this is my the last thought I have, at least, is um, some people will still be attracted to the Bitcoin way of thinking no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if some of that is just like personality, yep. like you're kind of born been. with um, dispositions. You know, pr- dispositions. Right. And so, like, you know, people can can track the various personality metrics and who's more likely to become a Republican or a Democrat, like in the U S or like right right or left. Right. Some of these, some of these things fall a little bit like that. Like, do you like a world where you have your money completely separated from everything else? And it's very clean lines and like compartmentalize and sort of thing. And then I, you know, I don't know. I haven't done the personality studies for this, but I could totally imagine Mm -hmm. a specific personality being born genetically predisposed through upbringing towards being a Bitcoiner from birth versus yeah. being somebody who's like Ethereum totally. from birth. And maybe that's just the way things fall. And so mm-hmm. you're going to have um, people attracted to one system f- or the other. And um, that's the way it's going to be for the end of time. If people want to hear more about what Ryan was just talking about, I would recommend the Layer Zero podcast I did with Nick Carter. He classified as a Bitcoin is actually bringing like ancestral values forward they're being they're, they're bringing old values forward into the future they're making old values futuristic and valuable and the, the values of like conservatism finite supply like gold standard values uh and and i think you can extrapolate that and so like bitcoiners are generally more conservative and ethereans are generally more progressive ethereans don't want to bring old values forward we want to uh bring newer more sci-fi values here like to us uh, and so, like, generally, Bitcoiners are conservative. Generally, Ethereans are progressive. Uh, and that's part of, like, the dividing lines between these two cultures. Yeah, it's interesting. Even though there's very little difference, right? I would argue that, like, like Ethereum monetary policy is super Austrian, super yep, conservative super Austrian. Yep. from that mm-hmm. perspective, right? It's just so, sci-fi Austrian rather than historical Austrian. Yeah, and there's, I guess there's um, a difference in terms of how the communities tell their story. Yeah. Right. Which is like it's so interesting when you look at political debates in, in the US. So many voters, like we all kind of want the same things, right? But like there's one party that tells a different story than another party. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately identify with one tribe or another, right. even though like we want a lot of the same actual policy outcomes. Right. <laughs> it's like, but we have to pick a tribe. Right. So you can add your crypto, you kind of still have to pick your tribe. Right. Is that how it yep. it goes? Yep. That's anyway. why, like, when, when people come into the space and you're like, oh, I hate how it's so tribal. Like, why can't we just all just, like, promote crypto? I'm like, you don't understand. Yeah. You don't understand. You just haven't found your tribe yet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, man. Uh, anything else? That was it. That's, hey, longest debrief ever, 45 minutes. It's almost a full pod. Uh, we had a lot to say. Because we <laughs> shut up the whole podcast. Yeah, that's that's why. <laughs> it's pent up energy. <laughs> Guys, oh, hope you gosh. enjoyed this. Thanks for being a premium subscriber. This has been The Debrief.